drop. You're listening to Storyfort Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest, a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. I'm Allison Meyer from the Storyfort team, and I'm very excited about this week's episode. This is a conversation Larry Rosen and I had with author Bridget Quinn a few weeks ago now over Zoom. And Larry and Bridget know each other through the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco, and they used to host a podcast together called The Grotto Pod, Writers on Writing, which was part of Storyfort in the past. Uh, We talk more about all of that in the episode, so I'll keep this intro short, but I just really want to highlight Bridget's new book. It's called She Votes, How U.S. Women Won Suffrage and What Happened Next. As you may know, tomorrow... August 18th marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women in the United States the right to vote. And She Votes explores the stories of the women who won suffrage. So please support your local bookstores and get a copy and enjoy this episode. We have a very special guest today. I'm so excited and a little bit weirded out actually because our guest today is someone I've done a hundred podcasts with. Can you believe that we did a hundred episodes of the Grotto Pod? Uh, A fact which sort of shows up on her bio on her website, but she leaves out one important part. Are you not on it? You left me out. Oh, I'll work on that. I'll tell my brother to put that on. (laughs) Anyway, our guest is Bridget Quinn. She's the author of Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History in that order. And she's the, and she's going to, well, we don't have audio or video on this, but she's holding it up to show us. Uh, and she's the author of She Votes, How U.S. Women Won Suffrage, which comes out August 11th. Um, she is a regular contributor to hyperaller, Hyperallergic. That was hard. Hyperallergic. Hyperallergic. Why is that so hard to pronounce? It's not. Um, narrative, uh, a bunch of other stuff. You know, and the thing is BQ, and we, you know, we in the know call her BQ. Since you began this rapid upward trajectory, which has been during the time that I knew you, that I've known you, you seem to contribute to a lot of other stuff. Um, One-shot deals, repeated deals that may or may not show up on your bio on your page. It was so weird to have to look on a bio for you because I've known you for a (laughs) while and pretty closely. How long have you known each other? I'm not sure. Five Five years? Something like that. But, Allison, we spent an hour every week for two years in a closet together. So you get to know someone quite well in that much time. Yeah. And FYI, I handpicked you to be my co-host. Oh, I feel so so honored. How did you know? You know each other through the, sorry, and now I'm just jumping in. You <laughs> should. You must. Oh, definitely. one rule of Larry and BQ is you must talk over each other. Mm-hmm. I'm learning that about Larry. Like, I just have to, I have to just get in there. Absolutely. Um, and yes. with me as well. <laughs> did you meet through the grotto or how did you meet initially? We did actually. So when I, a, a, a mutual friend of ours recommended me to the writer's grotto, but then when I went for the vetting process, and by the way, it was 95 degrees and I arrived with a giant burrito. Not oh, knowing that everyone was going to be eating. It was giant falafel, right? Everyone else had salads. I had a big falafel. But I did not have a salad, Allison. You were, no. were you, 
were you in charge of new membership? I was. Okay, so that's how we initially met. And yep. um, I don't know. In I, charge, whatever that means. I opened the door to you. Yeah. And showed and, you the uh, room. It made a good enough impression that when we, you know, the, the times we had seen each other after that, when they decided to do a podcast, and they actually came to me because I was already doing another one. They said, uh, what do you got? You got any ideas for a coast? And I said, I have one idea. Aww. Bridget Quinn author. That's who oh, I want. I know he calls me Bridget Quinn author. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but we have so much other stuff to talk about because we really want to focus on your career. Um, there's a couple COVID related stuff I want to get into later, but I really think one of the most unique things, and maybe it's not that unique. And in fact, you and I have talked about how maybe not unique this is, but one of the things that's notable about your career is the 30 year slow burn <laughs> followed by rubbing it in the five years of insanity yes. that has come in the time that I've known you. So start by giving us an idea of how life changes when your writing career, something you've been aiming for for so long, suddenly catches fire in this way and some of the challenges it poses to being a writer. Um, well, I guess in this way, I mean, I had spent, you know, like a lot of people, I don't know what your story is, Allison. I kind of know Larry's, but, um, you know, I wanted to be a writer from my early twenties, well, my teens really, but really pointed myself in that direction in my twenties, um, decided, you know, I'm going to give my all to this. I'm going to take crappy jobs. I'm going to write and got some things published pretty early on and thought I'd made it. <laughs> Because I had a few stories taken and thought a book was around the corner, obviously. Um, wrote a novel that was uh, sort of considered by Random House, but not taken. Had two kids, needed to work full time to make money. It's kind of the usual story, but kept writing, kept writing, kept writing. Um, had another uh, collection of essays sort of half taken and then dropped. Um, wrote a memoir, got an agent from the memoir, published several chapters of the memoir in good magazines, including Narrative. Um, definitely thought it was going to get picked up. No one bought it. <laughs> and by the time I wrote my fourth book, uh, I, I guess by the time I got the contract for my fourth book, I was 46 or 47. So I had been writing and working for years and years. Did you want to say something? I, I did, but I, I keep wanting to not talk too much. But <laughs> Oh, uh, please, please, both of you because jump in. What I was going to say is so, and, and I think it notable too, because what we think of as a fallow period isn't necessarily a fallow exactly. period. Exactly, exactly. Because what ended up happening is when that memoir didn't sell after, I, don't, I had a, you know, one of the chapters was in Best American Sports Writing. It was in Good, good Magazines. I was completely devastated and I was in my now late forties and I just thought it's never going to happen. And I would, you know, cry while I walked the dog at night, et cetera. And then my agent who was amazing to stick with me said, you know, you just need to publish another book first. Do you have any ideas for another book? And I was like, no, <laughs> I just spent three years writing this book. I said, well, there's, you know, I've always thought about writing a kind of Vasari who was the 19 or who was the Renaissance um, art historian who sort of invented art history. He did a lives of the artists that was mostly all men, of course. And I said, I'd like to do a Vasari for women. And that was, that was it. And she was able to sell it within actually just a few weeks of that conversation. Um, but that, but I had been teaching art history. I had been, you know, 
thinking about that book for 30 years. So it w did not take, it took two years to write, but really that's not that long considering. And then, you know, it was an art history book. No one expected it to do anything really. I mean, I, I'd hope to have kind of a calling card book, right, to get mm -hmm. another book. And then Trump was elected president. And um, I think my publishing house too, Chronicle thought, well, that's the death knell for the book. The whole thing was gonna be Hillary Clinton was gonna win and it was gonna be like a celebration of women. But what no one predicted was that the book would come out right after the Women's March and this kind of resurgence of pop culture feminism, really. And uh, it did really well. And so overnight, uh, I suddenly had a writing career that I had always wanted and always hoped for and didn't know how to manage anything because I said yes to everything. And put a pin in that because we'll want to get... <laughs> and almost died. <laughs> writers. Um, but... I, I, I don't want you to feel like, I don't, because I have power over this, that circumstance was the only reason why that book was successful. You don't actually feel that way, right? Um, I think, like everything, it has to be both. You have to be good and you have to be lucky. And that's, that's the case with everything in publishing, I think. Um, it takes both things. So I think I wrote a good book. I'm proud of it, but I think how would it ever have caught, caught fire? That was a, a fluke of timing, and I was just lucky to be there. But I'd also prepared to be there for 30 years. I just want to say. And why was it 30 years before you decided it was time to focus on this project? Isn't that crazy? So this is, this is, it seems insane now because my whole writing life is writing about art. I mean, I'm basically a contributing writer. I, not basically, I am to an arts magazine, hyperallergic. I write about art all the time. But I had always seen art history as my day job and writing as my vocation. And I didn't think anyone wanted regular writing about art history. I thought it was just an academic enterprise. So they had just never met. It's so bizarre. It just hadn't occurred to me to the point where my agent didn't have any idea I had that background. Like when I said to her, I want to write a book about women artists, she was like, okay, well, why you? I'm like, what do you mean, why me? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you wrote a different kind of art history book. Yeah, it's not boring. And I think that's what, so it's spunky and attitudinal, I've read. Correct. Do you know, that's actually, I think, funny. Uh, attitudinal, that word has been used about my writing twice, yeah, like when, when 30 years apart. Yeah, what, 1996, someone said you were attitudinal? In Kirkus, yeah. What was that about? What, what, what? Uh, that was the first thing, I, that was kind of the first creative nonfiction I ever published, and it was in um, a Seal Press book, an anthology called Solo on Her Own Adventure. Because that, and that is actually sort of the other uh, element of your writing personality is that you are sort of an is it an adventured sports type or uh um i don't know i mean kind of so that book that story that essay is about becoming like leaving my phd program instead of going to get a phd deciding to become a writer and about growing up skiing in montana which is where i'm from as larry knows oh wait really? um, from montana <laughs> and uh and I had, and I had this kind of woven narrative of being a child learning, or not learning to ski, a child taking risks as a skier and a young woman in New York taking risks mm -hmm. to become a writer. Um, and the trippy thing is that one of the subtext stories in that essay is about me writing about this artist, Adelaide Le Biguillard, for grad school. 
And that's the book I'm writing next is a biography of Adelaide Libiguier. That's the book that you already have the contract for? Yeah. Full Circle, my third book. Yep. So, you know, actually what's interesting, so I, I've, I've gotten about 50 pages into um, She Votes. And, you know, Allison, what, before I met Bridget, I read the um, swimming story. Mm-hmm. In my, you know, I, I would get Best American Sports yeah. Writing every year. And I read this story and it, what was it, 2013? Uh, yeah. I loved it. It stuck in my head. And when I met her in the first time, I was, oh my God, you're the one who wrote that story. But I feel like that's a different voice. It is. Well, that's the other funny thing is that I was really known, known to myself (laughs) as a sports writer. I did all these things. And to to Larry, I I had three pieces, two notable and one selected for best American sports writing. I'd been a writer and researcher for the first five or six uh, ESPN X games. Um, I wrote a lot about sports and I saw myself as like that kind of writer, (laughs) but but a literary sports writer. Um, and my art history voice is different and it's partly different because that's the voice I used teaching undergraduates and high school students, which is a slangy, like get them by the neck and hold on to them voice because you're competing with the whole world around them. Well, it's funny because it's it's a very close voice. It's a very personal voice, mm-hmm. and the voice in your memoir. I mean, because you took the the story, the swimming stories from your memoir, right? Yeah. It's more sort of elegant and writerly. I was trying to be writerly. I guess. I mean, <laughs> fantastic. I don't know if it's attitudinal. <laughs> yes, that has not been one of the attitudinal ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I don't really know what attitudinal means. I didn't know it was an actual word, actually. But that's what's weird about it being used twice. Mm-hmm. Must actually, be. I, think, I think the first one in Kirkus was attitudinizing, which is an even weirder word. And the attitudinal was in NPR, on NPR. Mm-hmm. It's a very NPR word. Yeah, it seems like, <laughs> like a word you know what it means. Like you get it, but I don't really, I'm not totally, like attitude is in there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of the attitude of She Votes is an attitude that some people find very irritating, which is that um, these women's story, stories and work matters whether history thinks they do or not. And actually my story matters whether you think so or not. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the attitude, I think, that they're talking mm. about. It, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound like a compliment. <laughs> uh, might not. Well, they were both positive reviews. Yeah. I don't know. Well, no, I think, I think there are people who can really appreciate that, right? Like, why shouldn't women's voices, just because they haven't been heard, be mm-hmm. heard? Why not? I thought of it sort of as, as you have a gift for taking topics that could be dry, and you're the only one who's writing about them in a way that isn't dry. It's making them accessible to people. It's making them fun to read about. Yeah, I mean, I think that does come from teaching. And, well, it's two things. One is that... Um, I have a little bit of a like class chip on my shoulder, I think, uh, that, you know, I went to school in New York City, across from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where the whole rest of America doesn't exist. And um, so I insist on using the language of my people, <laughs> which is sometimes sweary and maybe, and also I went to college and some of high school in Southern California, so it's a little Valley Girl-ish. And that I'll use that with words like hermeneutics or, I don't know, sfamato or 
contrapposto or whatever. Um, and so that's one thing. And the other is that I want, I mean, I'm really nerdy about art history. Like I really like it. I like it the way some people like, I don't know. I don't know. Help me. TV. Baseball. Baseball, exactly. Like exactly like baseball, right? Like I'm collecting my artists. I'm my favorites. I know their stats. And I want to treat them with the same kind of um, offhand nerdiness. And I also want to puncture all the bloviating that comes around things like art history and makes it seem so exclusive and not accessible. It's totally accessible. All art was once contemporary to people, right? It made total sense. It wasn't a big deal necessarily. It was meant for everyone, not always, but um, it's, I'm, it's accessible I'm to all. I'm stuck on bloviating. God, I love I that. I know, word. that's a good word. <laughs> okay, so we sort of touched on how this overnight success, that's a little air quotes for you there who can't <laughs> see the video, uh, has impacted your writing, the time you have to write, uh, the time you have to spend traveling around giving talks. I was sort of filling Allison in beforehand on how giving, becoming an expert in your field has become as much of your job as writing has. Mm -hmm. So explain a little bit about some of the challenges you face now as you're trying to put together books. I mean, you, I think at one time, I remember you had, you were still not touring, but doing a lot of, uh, sh of, of um, appearances based on the first book. You were working, writing the second book and you were putting together a proposal for the third book. I know that was psycho. And FYI, two kids, a couple dogs. I'm still married and two dogs, yeah. Multiple oh, households. So far, yeah. How does one adjust? Um, you let everyone down. You <laughs> constantly screw up. Have you guys seen that meme that is um, a Penguin Classics book cover? And it says, my autobiography. And it looks just like a traditional Penguin Classics book. Allison, you know the one I'm talking about? <laughs> and it says... Oh shit, was that today? <laughs> My autobiography? And that's me. <laughs> like I just dropped the ball all over the place, uh, kind of and kind of not, and was traveling all the time. But you know, it was so hard to say no. Like I had spent three decades chasing this life. And so I just seized it. Like I just wanted it. Um, and also, as I think you know, um, books don't pay the best, you know? Really? Yeah. And, but, but talks pay better. <laughs> so, so there's that. And also I find it, airplanes are a great place to read. So I do a lot of research on planes and a lot of research in hotel rooms. Um, but I didn't handle it that well and I'm trying to be better. And at some point, a, a really good friend who's quite a successful business person said to me, you have to stop hustling. The hustle is over. <laughs> and that kind of was helpful. But I've, I've made a promise and I'm going to announce it publicly now. Do you remember when I made a statement that I was going to do two things at once? Do you remember me telling you that mm -hmm. on the Grotto Pod? Thanks so for that podcast with the two of you. You did? Yeah. I just, yeah. So, so the two things at once were that I was going to do the proposal and write this book, She Votes. And it only sort of worked. But um, <laughs> so now my new thing is the opposite. My birthday... Should I, do I want to say when my birthday is? Probably not. You so said in early, it on Twitter today. Oh, I did. Okay, yeah, that's right. Okay, it's on Twitter, you guys. Um, <laughs> so my birthday is September 1st. The book comes out August 18th. And September 1st, I am going to, you know, I'll, I'll keep promoting the book as, I, as needed and joyfully, but I'm really going to only concentrate on the next book. Like I'm recusing myself from everything else. 
Well, how does COVID make that easier or harder? Can't travel. Yeah. So much easier. What so are you doing easier. then? I'm giving a lot of Zoom talks, um, but not as many as I was, definitely not. And I mean, next month was supposed to be insane. There were going to be all these events for women's suffrage for the 100 year anniversary, um, which is the book comes out for the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, and none of those events are happening. So um, in many ways, and I was supposed to be traveling on the East Coast and giving talks at colleges and other places, and some of those have moved to Zoom and some of them are just aren't happening. Um, but I can just stay home. So that's, that's one thing. You can just stay home, but is our publishers worried about how that will impact sales? Yeah, it's terrible. I think book sales are way down. Yeah. Um, and also Chronicle is so amazing about getting books into places that you wouldn't expect them. Mm. And that there's a lot of buys happen there in gift shops and museum stores. Um, I saw broad strokes at the car wash once oh. you know, it was like, and, and none of those places are now available, uh, much yeah. less bookstores. So, uh, it's a problem for sure. It's a big problem. Everyone pre-order, she votes, do it. Or if this comes out after, just order it, just, just go get it. You'll enjoy it. Take it from me. I ordered three copies, maybe four uh, oh. last night. <laughs> You're about. the best. You're the best. <laughs> I try. No, I'm not. I'm far. Far from the best, but I am an experienced uh, BQ fan. Oh, so nice. I'm a Larry fan, too. I'm going to be an Allison fan. Let's all be Allison fans. Allison, chime in. <laughs> what do you got? Well, can we go back a little bit to your... I have a Montana connection also, so I'm always... Oh, my God. Oh. Well, I'll, I'll come back to you guys later. Get back, Larry. I have a couple questions related to that. So first... What was your conception of art history growing up in Montana and how did you end up in that? That's a great question. So um, I grew up in Great Falls and if you know Great Falls, you may or may not know that Charlie Russell, the great uh, Western painter, cowboy artist is from Great Falls. And I grew up, um, so I mean the, the High school in town is named after Charlie Russell. The only museum, art museum in town is the Charlie Russell Museum. So I grew up with an idea that artists existed <laughs> in the world. Um, my parents had a set of Time Life books of the great artists that I was really obsessed with. One of my brothers uh, was an artist from a young age. I mean, literally a painter and had a studio in his room down in our basement. And my cousin, Terry Mimna, is a very successful, uh, quite famous Western painter. And she's actually in She Votes a little bit because she, at the age of 24, was given the commission to uh, create Montana's sculpture for the Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And every state gets two people. And her, uh, she did the statue of Jeanette Rankin, who was the first woman elected to national office in America from Montana. And the other is of Charlie Russell. So I grew up in a place where I was around art actually, and um, art was definitely esteemed visual art, but the only, uh, only thing outside of Western art I had seen was in reproduction. Larry, can, I, can I interject here for a second? I think yes. if you're telling the BQ story, the developing BQ story, it's, certainly, it's not just place that impacted her, it's definitely family. Yeah. I think your family had to have something to do with your ability to appreciate all this stuff. Definitely. So I'm one of nine kids and I have five older brothers 
And my brother, Tom Quinn is quite a well-known artist. Also, he lives in Spokane. He's done many murals in Spokane. If you fly into the Spokane airport, he had the mural that is there, uh, he did. And um, my brother, Bill was also a painter. So, but not because not because someone gave them art lessons, like they just did it. I don't, so I don't really know. Um, my husband is from Toledo, Ohio, which definitely they have a lot more connection to art, but he also um, studied art history. And a woman I went to grad school with was from his neighborhood and she also studied it. So I think it's just like a nerdy thing some kids get into is what I think. I mean, I'm not sure. And this might be a good time to add uh, we were remiss in not mentioning it earlier that she votes does include 100 illustrations by women artists. Yep. 100 illustrations by women artists for the 100 year anniversary. And um, like I said, my cousin's uh, artwork is not, not by her, but a, a, a vision of her doing the work is in there. Um, what else did I want to say? And it also has a lot about Montana um, it has a, a chapter on Jeanette Rankin and also um, marrying my interest in, between art and sports. Um, there's a chapter on the first world champions of basketball who were a women's native team from Fort Shaw. FYI. FYI. Oh, I thought that was supposed to be a whole book. It is a whole book, but not by me. Oh, okay. Do you go back very often? Do you still have? My whole family... Well, not my whole family. Most of my family still lives there. Um, yes, I usually go back twice a year, once in winter and once in summer, but we didn't go this winter because we were gonna go skiing over spring break, which didn't happen. And I was supposed to be in Missoula for at least a week and probably two, uh, Missoula and Big Fork at the end of June or early July and also can't go. So I might not be there this year. You know, Allison, it's, it's probably not this way in Idaho because it's not, the contrast between Idaho and Montana isn't quite as steep, but in San Francisco, <laughs> it's kind of a Montana mafia. There is. In the arts. And I feel like Bridget knows all of them. Or, and if you don't know them, you sort of sense them. It's really funny because um, like for years, people would say to me like, oh, you're from Montana. Do you know Jack Bulwar? <laughs> and we finally met and Jack was like, oh, you're Bridget Quinn. People are always like, do you know Bridget <laughs> <laughs> but Montana's like that everywhere. Montana, what's the saying? Um, it's a, it's a small town with long streets. Yeah. Hmm. What's your connection to Montana? I went to I went to undergrad there, so I, I was in Missoula, and then my first job was in Helena. Oh, but nice. That there is like this weird. Some of my the most talented writers and artists I encountered are were in Montana or have some connection. There's something about Montana. I agree. I agree, and it also used to really irritate me when people on the East Coast especially would say, um, how, like, uh, you know, you must be, you're so self-invented. How did you ever come up with art? And I think I grew up, I mean, I know this sounds kind of hokey, but the Montana State Fair is in Great Falls. And there was a huge art pavilion filled with local artists' work. Um, Larry, are you making funny faces? I'm, I'm, well, that's the problem with the Zoom thing. <laughs> what, I, what I'm doing is enjoying your story, but it looks like I'm- Okay, okay. Um, but, but, but so but it's I, not the highest level of art, but some of it's quite good. But the point is Montanans or the Montana that I grew up in, people esteemed art and literature for itself. Yeah, that's very true. But I think there, there is a tradition of that. And, and even larger than Montana, though it seems to be centered in Montana, there is a tradition of the Western writer. Definitely. Definitely. Do you feel like you're a Western writer, even though you're not writing, you know, fiction with huge skies and giant clouds and stuff? 
Uh, I did a reading in February in San Francisco with Russell Rowland, who is a fantastic novelist and writer in Montana. And he um, wrote the blurb for the Montana or for the uh, for folio books, like authors coming about me. And it said Montana writer Bridget Quinn. And I like got choked up. I was so moved <laughs> because I feel I feel about Montana the way I do about art history. Like, I'm afraid the art history police are going to come for me because I don't have a PhD and I feel like the Montana police might come for me because I haven't lived there for 35 years. So, um, but I do, I do, I, I do a little bit. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I have asked to be in Montana in the past in Montana event book events and been turned down. Let's put it that way. Do you guys ever think about that sort of thing with Alex and you too? Like, do you think, cause I do, cause I'm an idiot, but like, <laughs> like if, if you were to think of the group you belong to, would you be Boise writer, you know? Would I be Bay, would you be Bay Area writer? Would I be Bay Area writer? Do you feel like part of that? Me or Allison? Both of you, all of us. I wanna hear what Allison says. Me too. I think that's so hard. I'm, I think what's interesting to me with my relationship to Montana is I'm from Boise, mm -hmm. but there's something about my heart that's like still in Missoula. And I, I think I've, I've been thinking about it a lot because when everything shut down and all the COVID-19 things were happening, it was like my first impulse was I need to be on the road. I need to get to Missoula. And it was a little bit surprising to me that I still feel this pull there, even though I, I love Boise, but I, I think I have a, comp, a more complicated relationship with Boise because I'm from here. Mm -hmm. That I totally get. Yeah. You're definitely dialed into writers in Boise though. Yeah. I mean, I, and I love the, the, the literary community in Boise is, I think, why I've stayed here. I, I was in New York before I came back here, and I didn't think I was going to stay. And I thought it would be like a brief stopover until my next thing. But I think the, the communities here is really interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, we've both been, and, and Bridget's only, you've only been for Tree Fort, but Seeing it at Tree Fort, I know you're seeing it at its best, but I don't know. It looks pretty cool to me. <laughs> I've always liked Boise. I remember driving through Boise on my way from New York City to Portland uh, when I taught at Portland State. And I was like, this town is great. We should stay here. We went mountain bike riding. <laughs> and it still seemed really like the untapped West. Like Montana was like that yeah. 20 years ago, too. People didn't go to Montana, didn't visit, didn't move there. Um, and Boise just seemed really fun. And I love Storyfort. Oh, it's fun. Yeah. We're going to have to figure out a way to get you back to Storyfort. I'll, 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 be, I'll be Christian Wynn right now. <laughs> we can find a way to get you back to Storyfort. I will come. <laughs> um, I think I want to talk about writing, like actual uh, writing, actually sitting down and writing, because <laughs> I know that you've participated at various times in a thousand words a day thing. Oh and yeah, I, I, I'm a 100% believer in that. <laughs> and I know at times when you're supposed to be writing, you're texting me, and I'm not yeah. sure. I blame you. <laughs> but I also know that a lot of times the time that you set aside for writing is also editing, is also writing a proposal, is also doing a lot of different stuff. So how, 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 do, you, how do you get focused? How do you sit down to actually write something? What's that process like, especially when you're writing books that require so much research? Yes. So, um, well, first of all, I have a daily rule, which is 500 words a day or two hours of editing or research. 
That's different from a thousand words. That's a mm -hmm. different thing. So when I, okay, so I do tons and tons and tons of research and take notes and I just write crazily about what I'm working on so that I have kind of fresh ideas as they're happening. But when I go to write, write, I will often do a two week set that of a thousand words a day, which um, Jamie Attenberg uh, invented on Twitter. <laughs> it was a thousand words of summer originally. So I write every day for two weeks, a thousand words. And then I take that and try to make something make sense from it. it. What's your preferred research style? Do you do libraries, interviews, uh, internet, all of the above? Okay, this is terrible. I never do libraries. <laughs> I'm like allergic to research in libraries. I know, Larry has a Here's why, because I have a reason. Um, when I was a grad student in New York, no libraries were lending and no libraries allowed you to make Xeroxes. So I walked around with it. Can I swear? Yes. I won't. Okay. I, I walked around with a fucking pencil, right? And like, because you, you couldn't use a pen and like a, some giant German dictionary or French dictionary walked up and down goddamn island of Manhattan and like had to sit there every day like ask for the book have it be brought out to you take notes by hand in pencil which I hate um and so that's something about that like I want to either own the book or be able to print the thing <laughs> so I spend a fortune on books and I do a lot of stuff online I recreated for my next book which is about an 18th century French painter I recreated the bibliography that took me about nine months oh to track down in New York in less than nine days on the internet and found every single thing. On the internet. Yeah, um, I, I either found the books, like was able to track them down or was able to find the article or whatever it was, even things from the 18th century. So you don't, and, and Allison, tell me, you know, I should deliver a trigger warning before asking this, but so you don't find libraries inspiring? <laughs> I love to be in the library. Yeah. I like to write in libraries. I don't want to do research in the library. I don't want to leave the book there. I don't want to have to come back to it. I guess if I could check it out, I would, but I just don't. <laughs> I think I just have PTSD from grad school. That's right. what I'm saying. I'm going to have to go back and bongo out that F-bomb, by the way. Uh-oh, are you in trouble now? No. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if they bongo out stuff on this podcast or not. But <laughs> on the Grotto Pod, we I, I used to edit it, so I would have to I didn't couldn't the only sound effect I could find was bongos. So every time she would drop an F bomb, I'd have to go back and create this little bongo thing to go over it. I tried really good. I've gotten much better. One time we had a, a guy on named Joe Loya who is he was a bank robber and now he's a really successful writer, but he yeah. didn't know that he was dropping F-bombs every fifth word? Oh my gosh, I mean, it was used in every part of speech. It was unbelievable, it was like, it was like poetry, it was fantastic. Yeah. And afterwards we told him like, man, I don't know, we're just gonna have to leave those, and he didn't know we were talking He's about. He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> the fucking F-bombs? <laughs> <laughs> but so, I guess because you, you, I guess most of the people you're writing about are deceased, so you don't have to do interviews, or do you have to do interviews? Well, I do now because I write for magazines, mm -hmm. um, and then I do interviews, of course, yeah. And in person, or now on Zoom. Mm. Zoom wow. interviews are hard. They're yeah. weird. Yeah. Uh, how, how much research do you like to have done before you start writing? Um, I think it's, oh, it's so tough because, uh, it's really tempting to always think I need to know everything before I can start, but that's really the death of, 
uh, energy <laughs> generally. So I try to do both at the same, I, I try to kind of like, do you ever listen to a song or you're on a walk somewhere and you suddenly get inspired and you want, so when I'm researching and I think, oh, I just stop and write whatever crazy idea came into my mind. Um, so it's kind of together, but I think, especially if you're writing about something like art history, um, the only way you can really riff on it and be loose is if you totally know what you're talking about. So, um, I mean, I'm spending a lot of time right now studying, uh, 18th century miniatures and pastel portraits and like, you know, really drilling down on minutia just so I could be free and talking about it. Not because I'm going to go crazy. Yeah, I don't, think you, it. I don't think you could sustain the voice you're using if you weren't well-versed in the topic. Yeah, you'd get caught out pretty quickly, I think. Mm -hmm. This is like kind of a side note, but I'm always curious. So what, is, what kind of art do you have in your house? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not in my house where I have a lot of art. Um, we're in the process of moving. But uh, so my husband and I met when I was at UC Santa Barbara and he was a grad student in art history. And then I went to grad school in New York City and he worked in galleries in New York, the IBM gallery and downtown in Soho. So we knew lots of artists and um, we definitely had the opportunity and should have bought good art when it was kind of affordable. I mean, it wasn't really, but it would have been amazing investments, the opportunity, the chances we had to buy things. But we made a decision then that we would only buy and, and have work by people we knew who are, or were our friends. So everything in our house is artworks by people we know. Um, and the thing is, we know some amazing people. <laughs> so <clears throat> I have some, I have Bill Feeney, William Feeney, who is a fantastic artist in San Diego, is one of my closest friends. <clears throat> I have a lot of his pieces. I have a lot of pieces by my brother, Tom Quinn. Um, I have several by my, my uh, cousin, Terry Mimna. So I have fine art, but I also have just, uh, I have a very large painting done by my daughter that I paid way too much money for at a school auction. <sighs> framed in my living room. <laughs> and it's funny how often people say like, that one is really, really good. I'm like, it really is. It's good. <laughs> um, I also, Lisa Congdon, who is the woman who illustrated uh, Broad Strokes, each, the, the beginning of each chapter has a portrait of one of the artists by Lisa. She sent me one of those, one of the originals uh, as a book gift when it was published. So even though I don't know Lisa really well, I do kind of know her and I have this connection to her. So sometimes it's that much of a connection, but, but all people we know. That's a pretty writer famous anecdote you just told right there. I know. I feel like that too. Hey, <laughs> and speaking of writer famous, a writer famous is a term that I think- that, you, that translates to not famous at all. Right. That we used to use when we'd have people on the show, we go, oh, I'd say, oh, it's famous. And she'd say writer famous, which yeah. meant not famous. Yeah. But, um, famous to us. Now that I feel like you've 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 exceeded writer famous. Don't shake your head. I don't know. This is a setup for a question. <laughs> what I want to know is now, do you find yourself in a position to either mentor or to have come people want to pick your brain to see how you've achieved what you've achieved? Yes. Aha. I well, first of all, I would say that phrase, can I pick your brain? You should never say to anybody. I just did to you. I know. Yes, but I feel free to. to you like to take it, it back. But that always makes me feel so like uncomfortable and kind of sad when people say that. But I think, um, 
yes, uh, it, it, and I was extremely generous, extremely generous in the first two years. We'd meet people for coffee and for, um, and the unfortunate upshot, not in all cases at all, but in many cases is basically they just wanted the name of my agent or they, they think that you have some magic that is going to make it happen. So I'm totally there for encouragement and to tell people how to do it and to, I've definitely given... A friend of mine just finished her PhD, and I helped uh, coach her through the writing process by giving her ideas about how to attack the writing. Um, I'm totally up for that kind of stuff, but um, but the pick your brain thing, I've learned to be wary. wary no, as, as you were telling that story, it reminded me of of a writer we know in common who really was clear about had a thing on a grotto email about how she was tired of this happening yeah. and when she pointed out it had never occurred to me no one's ever wanted to pick my brain but <laughs> that what these right what sometimes younger maybe not younger but aspiring writers are looking for is kind of a transactional deal out of exactly that. it's the transactional part that i don't like <laughs> i like relationships and i am willing to do anything for people i'm in relationship with as friends as colleagues whatever but uh it's shocking, but what happens, what I think has happened is there's been a lot of, um, I don't know, podcasts or writing about, you know, get a mentor or, you know, just be bold and reach out to people and, and in a way that's good advice, but it's also terrible advice because actually what you need to do is show up, show up. It, like Allison was just talking about the literary community in Boise, show up to readings, show up to what's happening, go to workshops, meet people, create create community and that's where the brain picking will be of some use to you. I think. Right. But, but if, if people want to talk about writing itself, that's cool. This, this oh, totally. it seems like they often just want to know who your agent is. I would say nine times out of 10, <laughs> which you can find out any on my website. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but well, I think what they think is going to happen is that you're going to say, Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I'll recommend you, to my agent. which also has no impact whatsoever, by the way, because they make their own decisions. <laughs> Can we go back a little bit to your new book? Yes, please. Yes, talk, talk about, about the book. She Votes, How U.S. Women Won Suffrage and What Happened Next. How early on did you kind of know you were, this was going to be your next project? So Broadstrokes came out in, I think, March 2017. Actually, I know that. And a couple of months later, my editor there, who I love... Um, sent me an email and said, do you know any historians that would be like you are an art historian? Like they know their stuff, but they're a little sweary and pop culture-y. And do you know anyone like that? And I gave her some names of people. Oh, should, I have, should I have recommended you? No, no. Oh. I think you raised your own hand. No. I didn't. I didn't raise my own hand. And now I'm going to drop. Now I'm going to name drop. Okay. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> it's really You're bad. Ready. Allison, you ready? Here it comes. <laughs> So I was telling Tobias Wolf this story. Oh, what do you mean, Toby? <laughs> Toby. And he said, um, and you recommended yourself, of course. And I said, no, I didn't. And he goes, well, you should. Of course you should. And I, I thought, and so it was kind of in my head, like, I guess I should have. Would I want to do that? And I didn't know what the project was at all. And then a couple of weeks after that, the agent got back to me, or the, uh, my editor got back to me and said, you know, those people are interesting, but I was thinking of someone, like, when I kept thinking about someone like you, I thought, why not you? Do you yeah. know anything about American history? Do you think you could do this? Here's the idea. We're looking for something that would be art-oriented about the 100-year anniversary. And as soon as I knew it was about women's suffrage, I was like, 
I have to do this. It is perfect for me. And yes, I know American history. I was a high school teacher and I taught U.S. history. So Well, and yet in the first, I don't know if it's the first paragraph, but it's toward the beginning of your intro, you say, I'm not a capital H historian. <clears throat> but That's so the history police don't come get me. Okay, but I was wondering if the editors thought that needed to be there. No, I don't think so. In fact, uh, so this is... <laughs> Maybe you are a capital H historian. Well, that's what Rick, or no, Roy, whoever, anyway, the guy I'm married to, he says the same thing. Like, if you write about history, you're a historian, but I don't think that's true. And here's why. Because, so in the, the original jacket copy, it said, historian Bridget Quinn. And I said, you have to change it to art historian. But mm -hmm. the reason especially was because the woman who wrote the foreword, Nell Irvin Painter, is a professor of U.S. history emerita from Princeton. A capital so, H historian. I mean, so it's insane for me to call myself a historian when she has a PhD in history and taught at Princeton for 30 years. Yeah. and has written some of the most important books on U.S. history. But you've now written a book on U.S. history. I mean, I guess. I don't know. It makes me oh. feel uncomfortable. I feel itchy and scared now. For many, many years, we had this debate, only the word was not historian, it was author. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, but that's different. Although, I can't, I'm over the art historian thing. So then when, when, our, our, when She Votes came, or when Broad Strokes came out, I got all nervous about calling myself an art historian because I don't have a Ph.D., and everyone was like, that is crazy. And then I realized it is actually crazy. <laughs> exactly. And now I'm over that. So I definitely am an art historian. I have taught art history for 25 years. I've worked in museums and galleries, written about art. It's fine. Definitely fine. Now, speaking more about um, She Votes, it, it also talks a little bit about underserved ethnicities, minorities, the challenges they also face in conjunction with the challenges women faced. Right. Now, broad strokes hit a zeitgeist. It showed up at exactly the right time. We talked about that earlier. Do you yeah. think something similar could happen with She Votes? In a way, I think if She Votes had come out four months earlier, it would have completely hit the zeitgeist because, um, well, first of all, I had finished writing it by December, 2018. So think of how much has happened in two years. Like, it's just complete. It's a completely different landscape. Complete. Like I would have, I thought about putting in the flu epidemic of 1917 and oh. didn't because I thought that's just such a crazy tangent, but a lot of uh, suffragists uh, gave up the, the fight for suffrage in order to nurse the sick and to help with the war effort and with the flu. Um, but it was just so much to pack in. So of course, if I knew COVID was coming, I would have pumped that up a little bit and mentioned it. But the book does end with talking about Black Lives Matter, which now seems incredibly prescient. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but it also, I mean, I wrote it right after the shooting in Florida. Um, and the, uh, what, is, what is the hashtag? Why can't I think of it? Do you you know, know what's sad is I can't remember that shooting. What was it, two years ago? Yeah, but, you know, with um, Emma Gonzalez and just- Oh, you know, yeah. There's March been- for so our, Oh, March for Our Lives. That's what it is. so many since. Well, that's the horrible thing, right? So, um, but I did end with this idea about um, young people using their voice and young women, you know, becoming activists. Um, so in a way it was, it was prescient, but it would be very different if I was writing it now for sure. So will it hit the zeitgeist? I don't know. I mean, does anyone care about women's suffrage right now? Like it's the 100 year anniversary. That was supposed to be the biggest thing that happened in 2020. And does it's anyone? definitely not. Does anyone have the bandwidth to care about anything positive? Right. So, 
Uh, and also because the history of women's suffrage is really one that is an American story, meaning it is um, both a story of hope and courage and also of systemic racism and uh, betrayal. Um, it's also not sort of the feel-good story. It could be um, that could be like a solve when you're when you're down. Although I do think the book is, on the whole, it's a very clear-eyed picture, but it's also very celebratory because it's mm -hmm. celebratory of you know women like Ida B. Wells who said "f you" and did it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but but of all you know of of a hundred years, more than a hundred years, closer to two hundred years of women in the United States, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing to get something that only men could give them, which is. I mean, it's a pretty incredible moment when you really think about what had to happen. Women had to convince men to give them the vote. Like, right, right. That's hard. <laughs> and it took a long, long time. So it is a story of empowerment and inspiration. It is. It absolutely is. It's also a story of betrayal and, right. you know, and so is everything, really. Um, it's an, especially uh, in American history. And I think to me, there's nothing wrong with telling the whole story and still, and still feeling uh, inspired, inspired by all these women of all kinds who did the hard work and many of them didn't get to see the fruits of their labor, but they did it anyway. Mm -hmm. Do you think on the other end of this, I mean, I know your answer is going to be no, but would you anticipate being in demand on this subject as you have been in demand on art history? And if so, you put them all together and what you're putting together is, I mean, you become in demand as a speaker about feminism and women's rights mm -hmm. and the I development of that. I think I'm most in demand as someone who can um, distill complicated historical moments and complicated historical concepts into a language that's not off-putting and and most importantly, can recontextualize it, which is blah, 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 as a story that you might be interested in. And yeah. that's something that, I mean, there are so many amazing uh, historians of women's suffrage, amazing feminist speakers, thinkers, academics in the United States, but they don't always have the ability to speak in a language that is... Um, it's it's an important language. It, it's an academic language. But what is the language of storytelling has a lot of power, and I see that as my my gift, <laughs> or what I have to offer, what I can bring to the table. How purposeful was that? I mean, we sort of gone over that a little bit, and but that's everything. Yeah. So before writing, you said, "This is what I'm going to do. I'm, I set out to do this." Completely. I mean, that's that's why I left art history was because story was so suspect, right? You weren't a serious art historian if you were interested in biography. You weren't a serious art historian if you were interested in what happened. You weren't, uh, that kind of art history wasn't valued. And I was interested in those things. And then when I became a writer, I, I wanted to tell stories. So to me, that's, and I think I say that in the introduction to She Votes, like I might not be a capital H historian, but I am a storyteller and I know this history and let me tell you a story. And everybody likes to hear a story. Sure. I think. Um, Did you ever go back to some of your earlier projects, like that first novel? Uh, the novel, definitely not. Although one of the things that's been crazy in looking back at, at my career is that novel was about a young woman who was an artist in Montana oh, wow. discovering that her grandmother had been an artist. 
and untangling her life. And her mother is kind of like a waitress in a bar um, and she wants something more and feels like she's growing up in a place that isn't the center of the world and finds out that her grandmother had lived in Paris and had had an artistic life. And it was based slightly on my great aunt who was a painter. Um, and interestingly enough, um, there is such a painter in Montana. And uh, I did not discover that till much later, wow. who was a modernist who lived in Paris, who came back to Montana and started the place that's now Tippet Rise. Oh, wow. um, I think her name is Isabel Johnson. Um, so just to realize how much I've revisited and revisited the story of women artists without even being aware of it. One of the first stories I ever published, short stories when I saw wrote fiction, was about a woman who, was, uh, who wrote recipes from artists for a New York magazine. Like, I don't know what this, um, so she would like, like get Andy Warhol's recipe or something. Um, Deep in the New York thing back then. I guess so. So anyway, uh, so that, that idea has always been there. So um, I don't think I'll ever revisit those. I don't think I'll ever be a fiction writer again, but I do feel like the memoir, there's something there still, even though most of the chapters have been published by now, um, I would sort of re-look re at it. Sometimes I feel like this is all designed to get that memoir published. Maybe. It's the thorn in your side. It was Nobody so Nobody wants it. <laughs> Well, hey, back, back to stories for a second, sort of struck me, you know, speaking of telling the story of suffrage as a whole, which women's stories stuck out the most to you? Uh, oh, my God. I mean, there's just so many incredible stories, truly. Um, I mean, I think the story that I've, I discovered that I, you know, where you like, look, look up and look around and think, wait a second, does nobody know this? Mm -hmm. And then realize like, people do know, but either they don't get how crazy cool this is, or it's just never been explained in the right way. But um, Sacagawea was unknown in American history until the early 20th century. Hmm. Um, you know, the Lewis and Clark expedition is early, early 19th century, like 1805, something like that. And it's not until this novelist in Oregon, who's also a suffragist, begins to do research on a historical novel about Lewis and Clark because they end up in Oregon that she discovers there was this teenage native girl with them. And she gets all interested in, and creates a character from very slim writings in, the, in Lewis and Clark's journals, creates this full character about Sacagawea. And Sacagawea became a symbol for women in the West for women's suffrage because she was a mother. So she had um, her baby, I think six weeks before she went on the um, Lewis and Clark expedition. And I mean, you know, Imagine, I, you know, she walked thousands of miles with a baby on her back. Um, all, the, all those people complaining about being stuck with their kids inside. I know. <laughs> and, you know, she was an incredible woman and she was really a woman of the West. She was a mother and she cast the first vo known vote in America by a woman. So when, um, when the Lewis and Clark expedition ends up on, uh, you know, at the Oregon coast, they vote on where they'll have winter camp and they allow York who's a black slave to uh to vote and they allow Sacagawea to vote um and they count their votes the same as all the men other men on the expedition so she was this perfect symbol for women of respect for women in the west for mothers because um, the anti-suffrage movement, which included many, many women, w one of the main thrusts of the movement was that women couldn't vote because they would abandon their children to go vote. 
And Sacagawea was a perfect example. Like you could just actually take them with you. You could just take them wherever, like over the pass or, you know, whatever. And so um, this woman, uh, Ava, Ava Dye, she uh, made a lot of money. It was a bestseller. And she helped fund a Sacagawea statue fund. And she created the first artwork that I can find to a real woman in America um, in the early 20th century. And it was dedicated by Susan B. Anthony in Portland. And it's still there today. And it was done by a woman sculptor named Alice Cooper in, uh, from Denver. So I just loved everything about that story. A woman artist from the West, from Denver, a woman novelist in Oregon, all suffragists, raise money for women's suffrage, get Susan B. Anthony to get, dedicate the statue. And, the fir- and especially right now with all of this going on about what should public art look like in the United mm-hmm. States? What should, who should be honored? Sacagawea is really the first real woman to be honored in American society with these monuments and they exist all over the West. I mean, Great Falls has several, Montana has many. I'm sure Idaho does too. Um, yeah, so that was one of the stories that just, I found super compelling. How great was it while you were researching to come across these sorts of surprises? I just lo- I love things like that. I, I just thought it was so, so great. And then also, I mean, and this story is becoming better and better known, but um, because the anniversary is coming up. And I mean, I had all these things where I kept saying to my editor, I'm going to get scooped. Like I have these great stories that everyone's going to know about by the time it's done. But, um, you know, uh, the vote for ratification of the 19th Amendment came down to one state, Tennessee, and it came down to one vote. And it was a 22-year-old um, member of the House of Representatives who changed his vote mid-vote mid because his mother sent him a letter that said, Harry, be a good boy and vote for a suffrage. So he did. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I just love that he did it. And that after a hundred years of, of women who wanted suffrage being told they were either bad mothers or the kind of terrible women, you know, abominations of womanhood who wouldn't even be mothers, that it was a mother who made it happen, who makes it happen. And then he gave a talk the next day because there had been all this thought that he had been bribed or he'd been blackmailed. And he gave a talk um, to the joint sessions of, of Congress in Tennessee and said, um, I know it's always best to do for a boy to do what his mother wants. And I think that's true. That's a great story. Was there some talk back then that if you gave women the vote, the best looking man would become president? Uh, I, I, would I, not, heard that. I, I would not be surprised. I mean, there was that kind of stuff all the time yeah. right? that they would vote for looks. Um, of course, there was a lot of fear around, um, you know, uh, the emasculation of men, if women had the vote, that children would be abandoned. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. Children would be abandoned. Well, this, this of course, if Bridget knows, is the part where I look at my notes one more time, and I say, I think I covered everything I wanted to cover. We're almost out of time. Allison, is there anything we have not covered that you wanted to cover? Well, can I ask just one? Did I see that you did an, an event with Gloria Steinem? Did I see that? I did. <laughs> it was amazing. Yes, I did. And well, first of all, she's in the book, of course, right? Um, that was one of those moments where, yeah, like, even though it was on Zoom, because, yeah. of, but I still had this like electric moment talking to her and, and being in conversation with Gloria Steinem. I mean, it really was, it was so moving to me and so exciting and thrilling. Like, it, 
it meant everything to me. And has, she's amazing. Has this job taken you places you didn't think you'd get to go? Oh, yeah. And the places you, the places you wanted to go but didn't think you'd get to go? Yep. That's pretty things. awesome. It's pretty awesome. I know. I can't believe it. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> crazy. It's great. I love it. I, 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 I just can't overstate how, you know, five years ago, I thought I'm going to die bitter, even though I have everything, because I don't have the one thing I've always wanted, which is to write something and have it be acknowledged. And now I told my kids, like, after Broadstars came out, I remember we were driving the car and I said, if, I just want you to know if anything happens to me, don't worry. If I die, it's fine, because I've had such a great life. And my son goes, yeah, that's cool, mom. What about us? I was like, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's funny how when, you, when you're a young writer, you're very ambitious. And after right. years, years of not publishing something, you get down to the point where really all you want is to hold something in your hand yep. that's finished and bound and has your name on it. It's true. And then everything else has been just a, like gift, gift, gift. Gravy. That. It's gravy. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Chronicle makes beautiful books. They do. So to have like a beautiful object to have people actually read it, to have people I respect like it. I mean, Nell Irvin Painter, I was so scared to email her to ask her to write the foreword. I spent three hours writing like a three sentence email. I was quaking. And she wrote me back in like less than 10 minutes and said, sure. Sure. <laughs> and wow, it's great. You have to get, you have to sort of do a little adjustment to get used to the idea that you are, you're in, you're in the room now. Yeah. You know, definitely. You're not definitely. knocking on the door anymore. Yeah, definitely. Well, and you've also been on Zoom calls for three and a half hours. So I think yep. we can wrap it up. <laughs> this was very fun and very nice to meet you, Allison. Thank you to BQ for joining us. Thank you to Allison. Thank you to Christian Wynn. Thank you to Treefort and Eavesdrop Studios. Here's how we end these podcasts, Bridget Quinn author. We say, I'll see you at the fest. Tomorrow. But tomorrow never came